Welcome back to Not Your Average BS, where we talk about what everybody else is thinking. I'm Brendy. And I'm Shannon. What's up, you all? Happy Monday. Happy Labor Day. We hope that everybody has enjoyed their long three-day weekend by the pool, by the beach, in their house. You know, whatever you're rocking with today, we hope that you're enjoying the day off. And if you don't have the day off, keep grinding for the money because that's what we all need right now. Um, we have a interesting episode for you all today, a little bit more candid, a little bit more soulful, if you will. Um, so without further ado, let's get into today's episode. First, let me just say it is so nice to see Shannon and just see her beautiful face as we record this episode together because it has been a hot minute since we have been back here. And honestly, since we are both back in Charlotte now, I'm excited for us to get back in the studio yes. at least once. Like least I was going to say time. that before like we started the intro I was going to be like back at it again just how call her daddy does <laughs> but I was like you know what like this this podcast is the furthest thing from call her daddy so so truly, so let's truly. not have that moment right now but we are back together. Let's not have that chaotic energy. Yes, excited to be back. Yes, oh my gosh, we need we're still recording remotely right now but Mark my words, we will be in the studio at least some point in September because I miss sitting down in the studio, getting those headphones on and staring at Shannon Ooh, right across set from the, the vibe. Table. Set the vibe, like, sis. I'm going to set the tone, set the vibes for you. Honestly, recording in studio is just such a blast. And honestly, I'm just glad that we are back in Charlotte together, um, getting ready for the start of our second year of graduate school, which is absolutely insane going to school in the midst of a global pandemic it's it's definitely interesting um so for unc charlotte we are completely online until october 1st when they are planning to move to in-person classes they're not allowing freshmen to move on campus or anyone to move on campus rather until the end of september so It'll honestly be interesting to kind of see how this unfolds. I know a lot of different schools are doing a lot of different things. So, I mean, it's kind of just a trial and error. No one really knows what's going to be yeah. best. And, I mean, across the board, it seems like schools are trying to figure out what makes sense for them. I know that places like App State and Western Carolina, which are in North Carolina, are still in person. They haven't had any sort of mass outbreak that they've been telling the public about you know they might be keeping that under wraps but they're still in person mm -hmm. while schools like nc state which is where brendy's sister goes has decided to just go fully virtual and then you have unc charlotte that's saying we're starting out one way hopefully we're going to move to another way so i really don't think that there's one answer particularly that makes sense uh for schools I could personally not imagine having to be making those decisions right now. So luckily we are kind of on the other side of things and our program made the proactive decision as we've shared with you all before to just do classes remotely. Brendy and I are only taking one class and then the rest of our hours come from an independent study with our prospective internships. But I will say that it's been nice to kind of have a clear, clear cut plan from the beginning, whereas I know that a lot of people 
have been wrestling with the fact of having to go on campus and then not even two weeks later we're told to pack up their stuff and get home so speaking of moving brendy is back in charlotte she is in a new house this year so brendy how are you adapting to farm life yes so i actually have gone from a very i would say like (laughs) average typical regular regular neighborhood to now living at basically a farmhouse Um, So we have some animals here and I'm living with my family friends again. And honestly, it's different. I will say that it's a little quieter, a little further away from things. But honestly, it's been such a blast. Like the animals are so much fun. I mean, I'm I'm actually not even going to front. Like I don't play with the animals every day, but they are Mm -hmm. like fun to spend time with every now and then. And we have a pool here. It's just it's overall a really great time. And I'm close to some of my friends being a little further in South Charlotte. So it's all. Overall, just really great vibes. Glad I'm not having to commute up to university. So yeah, it's been mm-hmm. it's been good overall. We're definitely gonna have to have Amelia and Tim on to share how they went from suburbia to farm life at some point. So stay tuned for that in case you want to learn how to own goats and chickens and stuff of that nature. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so getting into today's episode. We really wanted to talk about the importance of this month, which is, if you didn't know, September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and it's something that's obviously very near and dear to me as a childhood cancer survivor. Um, And as we kind of go through this episode, I I think something that I really want to drive home to you all and something that... I really experienced is before being diagnosed with cancer, I really, I like didn't know anyone that had cancer that was my age. And I didn't realize how, how many people it impacted. I mean, childhood cancer is like the number one killer of children in the United States by disease, which is astronomical. And the fact that there's just so minimal funding going towards this is just really sad and disheartening. And we really have to rely on the work of nonprofits like the Isabella Santos Foundation that we had um, Aaron Santos on a few weeks ago and other organizations like that to really do the bulk of the fundraising and making sure that research is being done. So today we're just going to kind of share a little bit of my story, um, answer some questions. If there's any other like additional questions, I'd be happy to do like a follow-up episode, like a mini episode, something like that. So I guess let's just jump right in. All right. Well, I guess we should just start really from the very beginning. As Brendy stated, this is her story. And whenever deciding what to talk about this week, naturally, this made sense because it is September and we really wanted to get back on the podcast together. So it's going to be Brendy sharing her story. And then intermittently, I guess I will ask questions throughout if that kind of flows together. So I guess let's start from the very beginning, Brendy, um, as to when were you diagnosed with cancer? Yeah. Also, feel free to jump in with questions at any time. Obviously, if they suck, I'm just going to edit them out. Okay. So so I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 13 years old, and it was eighth. I was in eighth grade at the time. Um, Well, I was kind of in eighth grade transitioning to ninth grade. I was technically in ninth grade when I was diagnosed, but I had been experiencing pain for a lot longer than that. I had been experiencing leg pain for basically from November of 2010 to July of 2011. So 
like a good eight months or so. And it wasn't consistent at first. That's why it wasn't something that was like, you know, a big concern. It was more so I had basically what was going on in my life at the time. I had just finished tryouts for dance team. I had been working out a lot that week and my leg just started hurting. And honestly, me and my mother both thought it was just because I had been, you know, working out harder than I normally would on an average week. Um, So we just chalked it up to that. Wasn't really a concern. um, And it kind of was going on and off. We're trying a few different things, medicines, creams, um, more of a I think it's the like homeopathic route, um, like holistic. Right. And it was, it was helping. So like, obviously nothing seemed off about that. And then I would say the pain was going off and on. It started to come a little bit more and we tried different things, went to a chiropractor, started getting adjustments and that helped a lot. Like that was, was a significant difference. So then we thought it was fine. I was just getting the adjustments and everything was going okay. Then it started getting a little bit worse um, over the summer, and then it finally got to the point where I remember one moment that stands out to me so much is my eighth grade like promotion ceremony, and we were all standing in line waiting to go through and you know walk across the stage and stuff. And I just remember the only time I wasn't I had I had almost grown numb to the pain at this point. The only time I was not experiencing pain is when I was standing completely still. The second that I moved my leg to start walking forward, I literally felt like my leg was just in so much pain, like burning almost. Um, So that's when it started to ramp up a little bit. And the strangest thing was that everything we were doing was still working. Like it was never consistent, consistent pain where nothing that we did wasn't working. Like the adjustments were still working. The creams were still working. They just weren't, I would say at this point, they weren't working as well, but they still made a difference. So that's when, you know, we didn't really think anything of it. So then uh, I would say over the summer, right before my freshman year of high school, it's, it's summer 2011 at this point. And the pain, it almost went from, if I would say, if I had to rate it, I would say it went from a seven- to like a 10 within a span of a few weeks. And I'm someone who has a very high pain tolerance. So when I say that my pain's a 10, it means that like it's a real, it's really a 10. Um, So I would wake up in the middle of the night, remember this so vividly, and just clutching my leg because it felt like, I'm not being dramatic, it literally felt like my leg was on fire. It felt like someone had literally taken a flame to my leg and that is the best way I can describe the pain. And so once I started being woken up in the middle of the night with this literal fire pain coursing through my leg, that's when we realized it was something more serious that obviously if these things stopped working, if the pain was getting worse, then we needed to try and figure out what it, what the, the root of the pain was. So that's when I went to a, um, I went to an orthopedic doctor and things were going well, um, got in there. They had me do an x-ray. He said there was like kind of a shadiness. Basically where the pain was, it was like a little bit below my right knee. So he did an x-ray. There was a little shadiness he saw. So he was like, okay, we're going to do an MRI. For 13-year-old me, that was the biggest thing in the world. I Everything at that age is just such an inconvenience to your life. I mean, think back to when you were 13. Um, So that was a huge inconvenience for me, especially because we were planning to go up to Maryland that weekend, which if you're listening for the first time, that's where 
we have we're originally from where all my most of my family still is. So I wanted to go see my cousins and hang out with my family. And it was just such an inconvenience. I had to get this MRI. So got me when I had to get a flu shot at no. age 13 and thinking <laughs> no, that it was literally. a major inconvenience. Right. Like anything at that age is just like, oh my gosh, like why, why, why do I have to do this? <laughs> so got the MRI. That went fine. And I was coming back for a follow-up visit the, the next Monday. Come back the next Monday. Um, and they're like, okay, we're going to refer you to Wake Forest Baptist Health, which is in Winston-Salem and where Brenner Children's Hospital is a part of that hospital system. So again, huge inconvenience to me. I'm like, okay, they clearly don't know what's wrong with me. Like they have to send me to people who are smarter than them. Like, okay, whatever. So get to, <laughs> this part's kind of funny. So we get to the, um, to the, to the parking deck at, at Wake. And, and you'll hear me say Wake or Brenner interchangeably. I'm talking about the same hospital where I received treatment. So we pull up to Wake and they have different floor levels. Like they have like a orange, purple, blue, like different color floors for different things. So like you go to the blue floor if you're going to the, if you're going to get surgery, you're going to the orange floor if you're, you know, trying to access the main hospital. The purple floor is for the cancer center. And guess where we parked? So we parked on the purple floor. And I mean, there's these huge signs that say, Cancer Center, park purple floor. Cancer Center, park purple floor. So I'm like, meanwhile, my parents have not said a thing to me at this point. So I'm like, um, why are we parking here? Like, why are we parking on the Cancer Center floor? And the thing is, the this whole experience in my life was shaped by my parents. Um, my parents are people of great faith. We have... I mean, I've grown up in the church my entire life. And because they had such a sense of peace and calmness surrounding this, that exuded into me. So I was not worried. Um, that was literally going to be my first question was, you know, they refer you out to these other doctors. Did they start to, you know, panic? And did that transcend into you panicking? No. So they, every time that I was interacting with my parents, they were calm. Um, I'm sure they had, you know, their own side conversations that I wasn't privy to, but every time we were talking about it, whenever we had something going on, there was a sense of calm and peace there. So I was not worried. So I asked, why are we here? Like, why are we on the cancer center? And my dad said, well, we're still trying to figure out what exactly is wrong. They think it could potentially be a tumor. We don't know. It's not something to worry about at this point. We don't know if it's benign. We don't know if it's um, cancerous. Like it's not something to be concerned about. It could be localized. We just don't have enough information to be worried. And so I said, okay, because that was a good enough answer for me. So we go to the cancer center and we start meeting with people. And these next couple weeks are honestly kind of a blur. I would say um, I had a bunch of scans done. I had a CT scan done. I had another MRI. I had a PET scan. I had a biopsy taken. Of course, the biopsy was an inconvenience to me. Um, so essentially, the the first biopsy was where this started to get more significant. But essentially, based on my symptoms, how I was presenting, everything like that, the doctors told me several times that they were 99% sure I had osteosarcoma or Ewing sarcoma. These are two very, um, I would say, very like invasive, very aggressive cancers to have. Um, of course, I didn't know that at the time. I just didn't like the sound of them. But 
Yes, they were 99% sure I had one of these. The whole reason that they were doing the biopsy was to figure out which of the two I was having. That was the reason that they did the biopsy. So got the first biopsy sample taken. And if you're not familiar how a biopsy sample works is they take a sample of your cells or a sample of the tissue, rather. They soak it in a solution for several days, usually about a week, until they can take it out. The tissue is soft enough that they can slice it thinly, look at it under a microscope, and then identify what kind of cancer cells are there. So my first biopsy actually disintegrated. And it's not completely uncommon that that happens. Um, I mean, it happens every now and then, but it's it's definitely. I would say it's more uncommon than not. Like that doesn't typically happen. I would say, um, and of course that was frustrating for me because I was like, I have to get a second biopsy. Like everything. I mean, just try to put yourself in a thirteen year old shoes. Like when I tell you, everything was an inconvenience to me. Everything was an inconvenience to me. Um, so the first biopsy disintegrated. I was getting frustrated. And I would say really went up and leading up to that first biopsy was when I started to get a little more concerned because, I mean, I just, we didn't have enough information. They didn't know what cancer it was. It was still, there was still a lot of unknown, but we were still very like, I would say calmer, you know, putting our, putting our trust and faith in God that some, that everything was going to be okay. So we started having a few conversations um, about osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma, and then I had been fine up until this point. Had not cried a single time until I asked my oncologist, is my hair going to fall out? And he said yes, and I lost it. Because think about it. You're 13 years old. You're starting high school. No one wants to be the bald girl in starting high school. Like, that's not – no. Like, that's not what, what we want to do here. Um, and I feel like at that age, you know, I'm, I was very girly, like I loved doing my hair, I loved fashion, all that stuff. So that was very, um, like face threatening and was, was something that was going to change my identity. And that's, that's hard to understand and experience at 13, 14. And so fast forwarding, you know, I know that we're going to backtrack a little bit, but through chemotherapy, did you end up losing your hair and how has that shaped your identity as a female or as a woman. Yeah. So I did end up losing my hair. I think when, when it first started coming out, like it was definitely very emotional, very draining and very tough because I mean, I would start getting chemo. It was, and it was almost not instantaneous. Like, oh, I got my first chemo. My hair starts falling. That's that's not how it works, guys. It was more so very gradual. Like my hair would start coming out in clumps. It would start coming out when I brush it. And then I got to the point where so much was coming out. I just asked my dad to shave it off because I was like, there's no point. Like I'm going to freaking brush my hair and 50 hairs are going to come out like this huge clump. Like, what's the point? Like, I might as well just shave it off. So she shaved it off, cried after that. Like, I mean, I wanted him to do it, but it was just like still very difficult. So went through all of that. And then as a, kind of backtracking into where, you know, the first biopsy disintegrated, I was frustrated. My parents were like, what is going on? Blah, 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 blah. And I know that some people might not believe what I'm about to say if you don't have like strong faith, whatever, like take it as you will. I'm telling you it's my story. Like take it. Or leave yeah. It. <laughs> I was like, this is your story. It's my so story. take it or leave it. You can click off. Literally. <laughs> this is your story. Don't give us five stars though. <laughs> so then I didn't really understand this at the time, but 
after the first biopsy disintegrated, you know, we ha- obviously had a lot of people praying for me, neighbors, family, friends. Not a lot of people at this time knew what we were going through, but more just like the people close in our lives. And it was at this time that my my father heard a voice tell him that things are not what they seem. And I didn't understand what that meant at 13 because we, at this point, the first biopsy had disintegrated. We were about to get the second one done. We were, there was just so much uncertainty and ambiguity surrounding what was going on. So for him to say like, things are not what they seem like, I I don't know what that means. That doesn't mean anything to me. So then fast forwarding a little bit, um, you know, with all my complaining, I finally got my second biopsy done. And we're, we're kind of waiting to hear back from that. So one moment that, again, really stood out was we're waiting on the second biopsy. I think it had been a few days in. And it, it seemed like they were almost starting to get confused. So we had gone into the cancer center a few days after the second biopsy had been taken. And I mean, for the past two weeks, they had told us, we are 99% sure your daughter has osteosarcoma or Ewing sarcoma, very aggressive, back before medicinal advances. Um, You know, the only option was amputation, like cried at that. Like, yeah, I was going to ask like what the treatment for those two types of cancers are versus the cancer that you were obviously about to tell us that you were diagnosed with like how aggressive like you just mentioned amputation so at 13 14 years old what's the thought process behind that in yeah your mind? i mean well when he said he was saying that before we had had more advances in medicine the amputation was the thing and i i started crying i did i don't know how to process that information um, but even still today, some people with osteo-Ewings do have to get amputations. They are more likely to have their cancer return. They might have to get more like leg surgery. It usually appears in like the lower joints. They might have to get leg surgeries, have, um, you know, balls or screws or different things, put plates put in their legs to help stabilize it, um, which of course I didn't know at the time. And so, yeah, we go in for the second biopsy and they're, they're saying, oh, um, you know, we're still waiting on the biopsy results to come back, but, you know, we might, you know, she might have actually a a different kind of cancer. She might have a combination of the two. Um, We're we're just still waiting to find out. And so I kind of left that one even more confused. And my father was like, we were talking about it in the car. He was like, why are they hedging so much? Like, why are they, why are they so confused? I mean, just last week, you gave me a full clinical trial study information about me entering to a trial for Ewing sarcoma. Like, why? Like, how, what changed in this past week is what we were confused about. So a couple days later, finally get the call that I don't have osteosarcoma or Ewing sarcoma. They were wrong. And I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the oncologist on the phone said that you know, if you have to get cancer, it's one of the best cancers to get because it is so treatable. It just responds really well to medicine. People don't typically relapse. There's less symptoms, things like that. So that was obviously, I mean, I was upset that I had cancer, but that was a little bit more comforting to hear that I had something more treatable. And obviously going back to things are not what they seem, it meant that I didn't have the cancer that they thought I did. And it's interesting because 
I mean, I think they were so confounded by me, <laughs> truly, because every person that I would interact with, all the oncologists, they were like, she is, Brindy is just extraordinary. She's just an extraordinary young lady. Like we, because she is, she is, <laughs> but I mean, it's just not something they've seen frequently. And even now, like they ended up putting me in a medical study about me and four other patients that had basically presented the same, like Osteo Ewing's and actually ended up being a lymphoma or leukemia, but it, it, it's not very common. Like it, it was, it was just very interesting how it happened. You are diagnosed. And from there, what kind of unfolds? Do you immediately start treatment? Um, what about school? Like, what does this journey start to look like as you finally get the diagnosis that you had? And for everybody listening, Brendy is what the doctors say. She is incredible. She is extraordinary. I'm sure that you have gathered that from the last, you know, six or seven months that we've been doing this podcast. But I remember sitting in a car, my car at Center City Building before one of our classes and Brendy sharing with me her story. And this is when we sort of really started to get to know one another. And she was like, yeah, you know, it's the easier one. And I was like, hold up. I said the easier <laughs> one, baby girl, you had cancer, capital C, cancer. <laughs> she And just the way that she carries herself, you, I mean, most people that you look at, you would have never known the things that they go through behind closed doors, but just the grace that she has carried herself with from, you know, beginning to right now is just incredible and you would never know. So I just want to say that you truly never know what people have encountered or walked through in their life. And for her to sit there and say she had the easier one, I was like, um, when I have to get my flu shot or when I have an upset stomach, I act <laughs> like the world is ending and she had cancer and carried herself, which with so just an extraordinary head on her shoulders. So I will say that is that you never know what people are going through and how strong they really are until they really let you in into these deep stories of their life. So sorry, quick pause, but just wanted to like say that for a second because you really sat there and said you had the easy one. And I was like, baby girl. <laughs> <laughs> so moving back to the journey. So you're diagnosed, what starts happening and unfolding from that moment? I would say in the beginning, there was still a lot of just uncertainty because we, my family did not know any other, you know, family that had a child going through childhood cancer. So we didn't really have any resources or people to turn to in our own personal lives. I mean, we did end up connecting with a lot of amazing people at the hospital, but I'm, I'm talking about just in our personal network, there was no one that we had as a resource. Um, so in the in the beginning, it was it was tough. It was tough. Um, when I started getting chemo, well, let me backtrack a little bit. So one of the things that we were hoping for was that the cancer was localized and that it was going to be something that they could just take out or something that wasn't going to be very treatable. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. But um, I had a PET scan, which is pretty much the scan that they use to determine the uh, where the cancer is it really like lights up um in different colors showing where the cancer is in your body if it's red that obviously means you have a larger concentration of cancer cells there if it's more pink that means they're kind of dissipating 
Um, so I had a few spots on my body, unfortunately, but that's not uncommon with a blood cancer. So the spot in my leg was the largest spot, most significant spot, which is why I was experiencing pain only there. But I had a spot in my left upper groin and I had a spot in my left arm. Those two places weren't really experiencing any pain just because there wasn't a, a large concentration of cancer there. It essentially started from the place in my leg and then kind of traveled through my bloodstream to the other areas. Um so with that, that meant that it wasn't localized. I was going to have to go through treatment and that treatment was going to take two and a half years. And getting told that again, going back to my age, that's really tough, really tough to hear. Um, so I was in enrolled in school for about a month in traditional school at my um at my local high school. And then they pulled me out and I did a program that's through, they have a lot of tons of tons of schools, but it's called homebound studies. So basically a teacher came to my house twice a week. She would like administer tests and quizzes and things like that. And I was able to stay home. I mean, my immune system was not at the point where I could even attend school. Um, so I did have to do like the homeschool thing, but it, honestly, it wasn't too bad. And it, it worked out well because I know some people who have, you know, more extensive stays and more aggressive cancers, they actually have to enroll in the school system where the hospital that I'm treated at was. So I was fortunate that I would get got to still stay home and still stay enrolled in my traditional school. And so how often were you receiving treatment? Was chemo on a weekly basis or how did that all work for you and your treatment plan? So it essentially goes in different phases. So the first phase is called induction and that's really where they're kind of hitting you heavy with a lot of things. So you're getting your, your, you've got pills to take every day, twice a day. You've got your weekly chemo that you're getting. You've got another pill that you have to take on a weekly basis. So they're kind of hitting you all these different ways to kind of get the um cancer out like initially um so yeah i was doing i was having different medicines and chemo on a weekly basis and i did start to feel better after the first um a few days after i got that first chemo infusion in my leg the pain did start to go away which was obviously really significant because that meant it was working um so that was comforting but i mean I was only 13 and I really wasn't used to taking medicine. Like I didn't really know how to swallow pills, like had to learn how to do that, had to learn how to like take them with food, different things that like I could do. Sometimes we'd crush them up, put them in like different smoothies or applesauce or whatever, just like any way I could get it in my body because I was kind of on that cusp of where I was if I was kind of old enough to take pills, but I didn't really take them. And but I wasn't really young enough to be getting like the liquid, the liquid, um, what is it called? The like liquid medication, pretty much. So it was, it was kind of a, it was tough in the first few days, um, in the first few weeks. And it was just something that I kind of learned to take. This is something I'm going to have to take one day at a time. And so for, your family because you shared you know a lot of information about your parents but you do come from a large family like extended family and then you also have you know two brothers and a sister so once you had received your diagnosis and started going throughout treatment and over those next two to two and a half years how did that shape your family dynamic i think it changed a 
a lot in a lot of ways. Um, but one of the ways just being like, we all sat the family down and explained that I was going to be receiving treatment for a long time. And at this point, um, my dad was transitioning out of his corporate job to owning his own insurance firm. So that was one dynamic that was changing. My mom had to, um, well, she was working from home at the time, I believe. And so she kind of put, was able to still be with me when I was in the hospital, but my siblings had to get used to, you know, me and my mom wouldn't be around all the time. Some days I would, or some weeks I would have like four or five day long hospital stays and, you know, they would have to kind of get used to being on their own and my dad helping them. And then a lot of our neighbors and like family friends helped out a lot in that time, just, you know, picking my siblings up from school or like making meals for the family. So it was definitely like the community was very much present. So that was very helpful. And what would you say, you know, because you've shared, you know, you were 13, that's such a transformative age. You know, you're going from middle to high school, you start making different friends. And as you shared, you know, you were homebound doing school. So what was the hardest part of battling cancer at such a young, impressionable age? Because it's not like, you know, you were two or three where, you know, you would look back on it and say, oh, I didn't even really remember that time in my life because, you know, you are always going to remember this because of the age that you were at. I would say the hardest thing was just, I felt like I was constantly like on the outside looking in. So I would see everyone else's lives, all my friends' lives, all my family's lives. They were just still constantly moving. They were going to school. They were making new friends. They were, you know, able to carry on with their lives. And here I was sitting at home, like having to get chemo and take pills on a weekly and daily basis. And that was the toughest part because I felt, I it was just so isolating at times because, I felt like it was so hard to stay connected to everyone when they were all still, you know, coming into their own, transitioning from middle to high school, like making new friends, all of that, like you said. Um, not to say that like I had bad friends or like, you know, anything like that, but it was just it was just really tough to see everyone kind of carry on with their lives when mine looked completely different. And so you go through treatment and what does I don't want to say the end of the journey look like, but obviously the treatment started working. So how did that all happen? Like you got your last treatment and then, you know, you were deemed cancer free, but I don't really know how that works. So it's interesting. Um, so I was diagnosed in September of 2011. By December of 2011, they did another PET scan and I was, I wasn't completely NED, which is no evidence of disease. I wasn't completely NED at that point, but when looking at the side-by-side -side comparison of the PET scan from like August, September to December, you could see a significant difference. Like the two spots that I had um, on my arm and my groin were like gone. And then the one on my leg where it had been red before was basically pink. So it wasn't, it wasn't completely gone, but you could see that the treatment was obviously working. Um, so basically how it kind of works, you get that intense chemo and such for like the first year, pretty much. So I was able to go back for my sophomore year of high school, which was good um, and kind of helped get back to that sense of normalcy. And then I continued with treatment and it, it moved to um, there's different phases, like I said, but it moved to essentially like a monthly basis. Um, 
So I was able to return for my sophomore year and junior year. And then the um, January of my junior year was actually when I finished my treatment. And then what's the date that you were deemed, you know, NED or cancer free? I'm not exactly sure of the terminology. Yeah. So the the day I, well, I received my last um, like chemo infusion, like in December of 2011, it was towards the end of December. I don't have the date remembered because it's not that significant. But yeah. I, the day that I was like officially finished treatment is January 6, 2014. And so for you, how is life different now versus pre-diagnosis? I genuinely feel like my eyes have been open to something that I have I had just never been aware of. And I can kind of compare it to almost people like people in this Black Lives Matter movement and civil rights movement that we're seeing. Like, it's something that you just really had no idea about before, something you walked around in your life, never realizing how many people were experiencing this trauma and this one thing. And to seeing it now, it's like, there's, I have to do something about it. Like, I have to make an impact in some way because. I can't just sit here knowing that so many people are going through this and not do anything. And so how does that transcend into what you want to do in the future? Yeah. So in the future, I want to do, I want to be in the advocacy space. So whether that is, I would love to work for, oh, I mean, I have a lot of passions and things I want to ask yes. for. Um, we could be, we can be multi-passionate people. Yeah. I mean, but I think the main two things that I'm most passionate about are civil rights and equality, and then also child health um, diseases, namely, obviously, pediatric cancer. Um, so I would love to work for an organization that, um, you know, helps to advocate for childhood cancer, who works with legislators to make sure that this this issue is top of mind, to talk with different federal organizations and entities to make sure that pediatric cancer is getting more funding and things like that. Um, and I think that eventually the best way for me to do that will be to be in elected office because that way I can introduce legislation that uh, I'm passionate about. I can co-sponsor leg other legislation about child health illnesses and civil rights. Like I'm able to combine all of my interests and passions in a public office space. I don't think that's the only way I can do it, but I think that's the path for me. Yeah. And now that you have been cancer-free for, well, I guess, how many years now? It's, it'll be five years. It'll be six years in January. So do you have to, going back to more of the logistical piece, do you have to get scans anymore, like once a year or anything? And with that, do you get anxiety or stress whenever you have to go in for any sort of medical testing, wondering if the cancer came back or did something else for him now that you have experienced this on the other side for yourself? I would say in the first few years, there was definitely more anxiety there. Um, after I finished in tw January 2014, I think I was going for checkups every two to three months, if I recall correctly, um, and they would draw blood, um, things like that. Just I wouldn't get scans at that point, but I, they would just draw blood and things like that. Then every five years, I get an echocardiogram, which just takes 
it's just basically just a really close up picture of different angles of your heart because of the um, specific medicines that I received. So I would say in the first couple years, um, there was definitely more anxiety about going in and getting blood. Like I would work, you know, like I would, I would wonder like, oh, are my counts going to be off or, oh, is something going to be wrong? Like that kind of thing. But now I'm at the point where, well, last year when I went to visit with, or when I went in for my, um, for my like monthly or week, not monthly, for when I went in for my yearly checkup, um, my oncologist was like, you're five years out. Like, and I can say with pretty, you know, being pretty confident, I don't think this cancer is ever coming back. So hearing that was definitely very comforting. And at this point I go, I still go once a year. Um, and it's something that I'm not concerned about it anymore. Not um, just because it, it has been so long, but yeah, I'm just not, I'm just not as worried about it or concerned about it anymore just because it has been so long. But I think every now and then if I get something that's wrong, I'm like, oh, like, could this be related? But that's not, that's not like every day or anything like that. Doesn't, those thoughts don't really happen frequently. Well, and I think something maybe not necessarily different per se, but something that is echoed throughout your entire story since the moment that you shared it with me to now is really just not only you, but your family's unwavering faith. Um, And for some people, they may not understand that or ever get to experience that for themselves. But I think every time that I talk to you about not only just this aspect of your life, but so many others, it's really more so the calmness that you have, I feel comes from your faith. And so maybe that's a medicine that more people need in today's world. Honestly. honestly. (laughs) And so wrapping it all up, what do you want people to know about pediatric cancer that may not be very surface level, like that not many people know or, or are aware of? I would say the biggest thing to know with September being Childhood Cancer Awareness Month is that, like I said at the beginning, when you look at the statistics for childhood cancer, it's honestly astounding that the federal government isn't allocating more funds towards this illness. Um, Childhood cancer is the number one death of disease by by America's children. Every um, three minutes, a child in the world is diagnosed with childhood cancer. And only about 4% of the billions with a B that the government spends on um, funding, it goes towards childhood cancer, which sounds like a lot if you say 4%, but when you compare it to other cancers and you think about the fact that childhood cancer is so is so different because there are 12 different types, but there are over a hundred subtypes. So you can't, when you boil that down, that's basically pennies (laughs) that you're throwing to each individual cancer. You can't, you can't treat them like adult cancers because they're just so different and kids' bodies can't handle it. And there have only really been a few, I think it's, I want to say three um, new medicines that have been approved in something like the past 20 years for childhood cancer. So when you look at these statistics and you see that there isn't enough that the government's doing, I would honestly just encourage people to put more pressure on their legislators, let them know that this is an issue that they care about during Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And also, if you can, donate to organizations that are 
supporting research and funding like the Isabella Santos Foundation, like St. Baldrick's, Alex's Lemonade Stand. I can leave information about all of those below, but there are so many great organizations out there that are really helping to make sure that pediatric cancer isn't being forgotten. I was just going to say, we'll be sure to leave all of the information from the organizations that you talked about below, but specifically talking about the ISF Foundation, Brendy just had Aaron on a couple of weeks ago at this point. The virtual 5K is coming up at the end of this month and there is still time, correct, yes, to register? still time to register. All right. There is still time to register. There is always a time to donate. You can skip your $5 latte at Starbucks this week and give pediatric cancer the funding that it deserves. But I think that we all should give a round of applause to Brendy for being so courageous in her journey with battling childhood cancer. But, you know, not forget that there still needs to be money and awareness surrounding this. And it's something that Brendy is super passionate about, meaning it is something that we are super passionate about. So we will leave all of the links down below to places that you can donate or just educate yourself more about. I honestly don't have anything else to add. Um, if you guys have any questions about my journey or like if you want another mini episode with more specific questions or just want me to answer questions like on an Instagram live one day or something like that, I'd be more than happy to. Um, I would just really encourage you guys to share statistics and do research. And if there's someone in your community that has been diagnosed with childhood cancer, just reach out to them. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a monetary donation that you're helping with them with. There's things like gas cards that were helpful, people just making meals, people just giving me something like a blanket that would literally make my entire day. So there's so much you could do to impact. And like I said, childhood cancer is, I mean, they, people act like it's rare, but it is incredibly common. Um, so just make sure you're reaching out to the people in your own community who may be dealing with it. All right, you all. Well, that is a wrap on today's episode. As always, be sure to follow us on our social media accounts. We're on Instagram, Facebook, everywhere and anywhere in between. And until next Monday, that's, that's the BS. The BS.